Welcome to your digital reputation. Here's your host, Roger Christie. Hello, and thanks for joining us. My name's Roger Christie, founder of advisory firm Propel, where we specialize in LinkedIn for leaders who know the value of a strong digital reputation. And today we're asking, what is the value of LinkedIn for new CEOs? When I say new, I'm really talking here to anyone stepping into a new C-suite role, but I'm also talking to aspiring C-level executives and those who may be transitioning from one organization to another, because there are some really powerful ways to use LinkedIn when you step into a new leadership role, regardless of whether it's your first, your fifth, or your 15th time in the chair. So, if that's you or someone you know, today's conversation is likely to be incredibly helpful in providing a few pointers to help you make the most of your time on LinkedIn and, most importantly, have the greatest business impact, even before day one. Now, who better to provide their perspective and advice on this topic than someone who has helped hundreds of leaders manage this very transition and someone who knows a thing or two about LinkedIn as well? It's a pleasure to have Chris Morrison, Managing Partner at Executive Recruitment and Leadership Advisory Firm Meritos with me in the Your Digital Reputation studio today. Welcome, Chris. Hi, Roach. Thanks for having me here. It's an absolute pleasure. And I'm looking forward to this one because it's one of those topics where it just seems like everyone is interested in this conversation. What role does it play as I'm going from here to there or setting myself up for future success? But before we jump into it, I am keen to, I suppose, frame this whole discussion and start by clarifying a few things of what we will, but also what we won't be covering in this episode. And you and I both know that there are, for you know, whatever reason, people who can't use LinkedIn and, and yeah, that's absolutely. understandable, but this discussion is for those who can. And for leaders who are new to their role, soon to transition, those aspiring CEOs, those with growth ambitions, they're the ones that we're talking to today. They're the ones who are trying to say, here are the opportunities for you. Let's look at LinkedIn in a different light. But I do acknowledge that some people can't use LinkedIn in whatever reason in their professional capacity. And I think that given that context, your background's actually really well suited to this because I wouldn't describe you as a social media cowboy shooting from the hip and taking all these sorts of risks online. You understand the kind of the context and the risk and the nuance and the sensitivities that leaders must navigate when getting active online. So, perhaps as a way to start, can you give us a bit of an idea of your background and experience working with, can I call it the the legacy perceptions of risk around LinkedIn? I've probably been on my own journey of feeling comfortable with LinkedIn and how to use LinkedIn myself, which is interesting because I've been on LinkedIn since 2007, I think, so very early days back when I was still a public servant. Back in those times, it was forbidden to use social media at work. I mean, it was literally blocked on the web browser, so you couldn't access it. It was only something that you could access at home. In my early training as a public servant, it was really drilled into us that you shouldn't have a public voice, that you shouldn't comment on things publicly, that that was something that should be left to the politicians. And that's absolutely true. But I think in this modern connected age, it is so important for leaders to be able to advocate for their organization, to speak to their stakeholders in a more modern way. It's One of those topics, we've seen a massive transition, as you're saying, in terms of the expectations. And I think we're also seeing a massive transition in terms of the way the public service and public sector leaders in particular are starting to see that and starting to feel more comfortable. And it's something that I know, you know, you and I will be talking about in the future, I've got no doubt. But I do, I want to plug back into that straight away, I suppose, that perception of risk. As you said, things have changed since 2007. They definitely have. But there is still a perception that there is far less risk involved to stay off social media. What 
inadvertently do leaders expose themselves to when they take that attitude? It's a really important question for leaders to consider, especially for a CEO, because ultimately they're influencing the reputational risk of their organization. I would argue that not participating on social media is an even greater risk because what you're doing is leaving a vacuum that other people can fill with misinformation, for example. And there is a way to approach engaging with social media, I think, in a safe way or in a low-risk way. So, I speak with many leaders who you know, are really afraid about what may be picked apart by what they say. And I often encourage them that it doesn't need to be complicated. It can be simply them sharing information on the incredible work that's happening in their organization that they are already talking about in media releases, for example. It can be an opportunity for them to engage with their employees, to recognize their fantastic work and to celebrate their success. So, there can be a way to do it that is, I think, a low barrier to entry and a relatively low risk. Equally, leaders, as they become more confident, can also start to work at a higher level or engage in a more nuanced way, which might open them up to more risk as well. And I think there's an interesting kind of sub-narrative in that, Chris, which is I think leaders, if they're looking from the outside at engaging in LinkedIn and, and posting content and engaging in conversations on LinkedIn, there's an assumption there that the risk is around anything that I might say in my professional capacity that might actually reveal some kind of sensitive information or it might actually be contrary to the, the party line uh, in the organization, something that gets me into strife there. And the reality is some of those really practical examples you gave, celebrating staff and, and the people that are around you and recognizing your team, even I would argue sharing more of the human side of a leader, none of these things contain sensitive, commercial, any kind of risky information. But they're incredibly effective ways to connect with people and, and to share more of who you are as a leader and to build rapport and trust and credibility with audiences online. So, I'm fully on board with what you're saying there. I think it is much easier for people to participate than they may think. And the other point, which I think you've made is a good one, you can't influence any conversation you're not a part of. Correct. So, if you're sitting on the sidelines watching anxiously, hoping that people take very good care of your reputation, the best thing to do, as you said, is to get in there and take control of your own narrative and control your own reputation. The other thing I'd add on that too is people are increasingly interested in a leader's brand when they're making hiring decisions. So, I recall a CMO search that we conducted where it was incredibly important to the CEO that that person have a strong personal brand. So, they were looking at the connections, the influence, and it wasn't just on LinkedIn, it was more broadly in industry media that they were very much interested in and it played a factor in the decision-making process, certainly at the early stages of the shortlisting. Interesting. And I, and I almost, what I get a sense of through that is there's a benefit there from a brand, for a personal brand perspective for the role that that person will be playing, their industry connections, their credibility, their ability to perform their technical duties. And there's obviously a halo benefit there too, because if you've got a CEO, a CMO, others on the C-suite who have that trust and credibility and visibility online, that's a massive magnet for talent as, exactly. as we've talked about here. So, with one brings mm. several others, I'm sure. There's another point here too. I think LinkedIn is an incredible insurance policy for people. So, in the face of criticism or challenges, a robust personal brand acts almost like a shield. So, instead of being swayed by external narratives, a strong brand lets leaders drive the conversation and ensure that their vision and their values are at the forefront. So, when the going gets tough, that well-defined brand can often be a sanctuary of credibility and trust. We're hoping that we've talked, I suppose, 
was about the reasons why someone would consider reframing risk and, and that idea that participation is actually a really huge advantage, competitive advantage for you. Maybe if we go through some of the common scenarios that CEOs are likely to face. When you're a new CEO, you step into the chair or you're about to step in the chair and you're faced with certain scenarios, where can LinkedIn actually help? And what are some of the major benefits that's likely to provide CEOs as they manage that transition? There's a few important ones here, I think. The first being your external stakeholders. So, in any new role, there will be any number of people that you need to meet with. And LinkedIn can be a way to very quickly get in touch with those people to help them understand what some of your priorities might be, your style, who you are, start to build that personal connection so that when you do meet with them, there's some level of rapport there. The same can be said for your team as well. So, it will take a new CEO time to be able to meet everyone within the organization. That could take months. So, using both the internal channels that are available, but LinkedIn to communicate with people, I think is really important. And equally with a new CEO, I think people start to look to an organization to wonder, is that somewhere that I might like to work now? And so, equally, it can be almost a beacon for other people to notice another organization that they might like to join in the future. And I want to come back to that first point around revealing a kind of element of yourself and forming that connection with stakeholders, even if you can't meet them. And I think that's an important point before you've met them, if you get what I mean. Part of your 90-day plan is you come into the chair as a CEO and you're then tasked with going and meeting and, and building or even extending growing relationships with those key stakeholder groups. As you rightly say, if I'm visible and active online and I'm sharing thoughts around where do I see the direction of the organization? Where do I see the real opportunities? What's my vision or values and the way I'm going to do things? Before you've even stepped in the room with those stakeholders, they've got a sense of who you are. And ideally, they can see things that they're able to, they're able to form connection with. And those connection points are critical if you then want to, you know, have more deep, meaningful commercial conversations that require trust and rapport before you can get to them. I think that's a really important point that's undervalued. We're not just turning up on LinkedIn as new CEOs for the sake of it to tick a box. We're turning up very intentionally to share ideas about the vision and values of the organization and your own personal passions. And in that way, connecting with people to smooth over any of those future engagements. It's a really interesting point. Exactly. And I, I think an important point to make here though too is in those early phases, the board and the CEO still may be working through the next evolution of a strategy. It's very common for a CEO to join in a new strategic planning cycle. So, this is an opportunity to also tell people what you can't tell them yet. So, it's not about telling them everything or revealing all the secrets, but it is about setting the boundaries around expectations of what, you know, what is known and what is not known at that point. So, we like to talk about it, propel the five drivers of digital reputation. I think what you're covering there is the idea of a leader's activity and what they talk about, what they share, where they turn up and how. And an element there around network too, which is one of the other five drivers looking at the company you keep and the people you have in your network. One of the things I'm imagining is going to be incredibly valuable for a leader in those early stages is another of the five drivers listening. In your experience, what sort of ways do leaders use LinkedIn to listen to those key stakeholder groups and maybe even to understand pain points, but also opportunities for them to work together in the future? 
That's a, such a good question. And I think as in general life, listening is a severely underrated skill. So, I think many people understand how to use LinkedIn to broadcast, but not many people understand how to use it to listen. And you can use it to listen to your employees. So, by visiting their profiles, by seeing the sorts of things that they're engaging in, that they're commenting on. And the same can be said for stakeholders as well. I can think of actually an incredible example of CEO who interestingly isn't on LinkedIn, but they were newly appointed into a role and I was really pleased to see that appointment. I I think they're a wonderful leader. And the area that they'd gone into was relatively contentious with some quite contested stakeholders. And what was interesting for me is I saw lots of conversation from those stakeholders about their early behavior in the role. Very positive though. So, they were commenting on the fact that they were listening to them, that they were engaging with them. So, whilst this leader wasn't on LinkedIn or able to contribute to that discussion, this discussion was happening anyway. And I think to their benefit, it was a positive one. But I think the cautionary tale there is it could equally be the opposite. And so, one, being able to listen, but two, being able to contribute to the conversation then is incredibly important. It's, it's such a good point. Because I think that if you've almost got the DNA, if you've got the building blocks of a good listening mindset, a almost servant-hearted leader, someone who's more focused on their people than themselves, if you've got some of those fundamentals, they're the sorts of leaders people want to see online. They're the sort of leaders that people want to work for online. Correct. I understand that there is an appeal to the kind of chest-beating, visionary, brave, leading, heroic kind of leader. I understand that. But I think these days, and you were talking to some of the um, behavior changes or what candidates are looking for today as well earlier, I think today people want to see someone who they know has their back and they want to see someone. And when we talk about the practice of listening, a really powerful example of that is leaders who are visible online. Yes, you need to. You are a leader. You're expected to lead on things. That, that's a given. But leaders who also turn up online and notice what their staff are doing. They notice those little moments. They notice those little achievements and successes. And as you said, it's a great way to get intel from across the organization. What are my people up to? What are the key priorities? What are they talking about? And it's a wonderful way for them to just, with a simple reaction, with a simple but thoughtful comment, it's a way to show people that you're really genuinely interested in what you're doing and getting some sort of kudos from the CEO it's huge. It's massive, isn't it? The simple like. I mean, we, we joke about it, but the impact it has on someone who can see that their CEO is watching is immense. Particularly in a big organization where you might see the CEO once a quarter or a few times a year, perhaps passing in the lift, having that opportunity to feel like you have a direct connection to them and that you could speak directly to them is incredibly powerful. Because in our organizations, we build all of these structures which prevent people from connecting to us directly, not intentionally, and they're important structures, but online, those barriers are completely removed. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of the Your Digital Reputation podcast. Now, whether this is your very first episode or you're a fully-fledged subscriber, I want to share an exclusive invitation with you. I want to invite you to join the one program that will help you take greater control of your digital reputation and help you kick some real goals on LinkedIn. It's our Your Digital Reputation LinkedIn for Leaders program, a one-month program built off the back of hundreds of conversations with leaders and 30,000 odd hours advising them on LinkedIn. By joining the program, you'll get access to a range of planning frameworks, best practice guidelines, and one-on-one coaching with me, Roger Christie, to help you avoid common LinkedIn mistakes and get real value for your efforts. All that value in just one month to ensure you're set up for success well into the future. So, what are you waiting for? 
If you're looking for a LinkedIn for Leaders program, feel free to hit pause on this episode right now and drop me an email at rchristie at propelgroup.com.au or go to www.propelgroup.com.au slash YDR for more details. I'd love to help you amplify your impact and show you just how powerful a business tool LinkedIn can be. All right, back to this episode. I suppose piecing together your different pieces of advice here, what I'm hearing is that if I am that new CEO, I'm transitioning into a role. I'm thinking about, okay, well, where can LinkedIn help and what steps should I take? What I've heard you say is there's a really valuable role for listening to play to identify my key stakeholders online and to work out which conversations I need to be listening to. Once I've done that, I've essentially got the intel for myself to help me understand, to read the room, to understand what people think and to use that information to make more informed decisions. Part of that can also be starting to engage in those conversations, so commenting, interacting with those key stakeholders to build up that rapport and trust, which is really important in those early stages. It's almost like these are all the things that leaders can do before they've even made any firm public statements or, as you said, if strategy is still being worked through with the board, they don't need to go out there with those big, bold statements just yet. Even listening and commenting and building that rapport is going to be valuable. And and then building into some of those key messages. And the brilliance of that, if you've done the listening and you've done the very deliberate engagement with key stakeholders beforehand, when you have that key message that needs to go out, guess what? The people who you've been interacting with are the people who are most likely to see it rather than going out too early and talking to no one or talking to the They're wrong people. They're engaged in what you say. But this listening process too starts well before you get in the chair. So, it can start after you've been selected, but before it's announced. It can start once it is announced as well too, because your employees and your stakeholders are certainly going to be looking to find what information they can on you. So, your existing you know, reputation and profile is important here. But it can also help you in the interview process itself. So, what clues are available online from the organization stakeholders, from the board, from other senior executives in the organization? What can you learn about them that might help you get the edge over another applicant in the process itself? We've talked about some of the other five drives. I want to come back to network because you touched on that earlier. We always think that, well, I like to talk about LinkedIn as you are what you eat on LinkedIn. So, whoever you're surrounded by, the company that you keep, they're the ones essentially feeding you information through the LinkedIn feed and therefore influencing the level of quality that you get or intelligence that you get through LinkedIn. So, if network is a really important driver, what role does that play for a CEO who might be transitioning from a different sector to a new sector or what role does their network play or maybe what intentional steps they should take in building a new network if they're going from one sector to another. Have you had any experience with that or clients who've had that experience? I speak to people a lot about this. So, I talk to people in career conversations regularly about building their network in the direction that they want to head. I think often people don't have a heavily curated network or an intentional network. It, it really is who is connected with me. And I think it's really important to understand, especially when you're transitioning into a new role, how you can start to create those connections to build bridges with uh, new stakeholders. So, having a clear map of who they are, reaching out to them to introduce yourself, to ask to connect is, is really important. 
there's some real wisdom in that idea of building your network in the direction you're heading. And I think it's something that people may just gloss over. And maybe it's because think of a kind of life cycle, if you will, of uh, an opportunity or an issue. It feels like social media comes in right at the very end. It's almost like I've dealt with everything. I've thought about everything. I've dealt with everything. I've actioned everything. And now I should let people know on LinkedIn. And I want to challenge that and maybe flip it on its head because the example you're giving there is the opposite. You're saying there's an opportunity here for transitioning CEOs to actually bring LinkedIn up front and think about who are the key stakeholders who you're going to need to know, who are the key stakeholders who are sharing information on issues you will need to know. Bring that right up front. Start mapping that out. Start building those relationships. We're not saying here, by the way, go and send connection requests to 100 new people. No, no, no. Start spamming them. That's not what we're saying. Absolutely not. But there's subtle ways. You can follow people on LinkedIn Correct. without them you know, even being connection. You can hit the bell on their profile, the lovely notification bell, and make sure that you're getting notifications and updates from those people before they even know you exist. And in doing that, you're immersing yourself in the environment you're going to play in in the future. So you walk into the room when that conversation happens, as an incredibly informed and credible stakeholder. I want to reinforce that point, the simplicity of that message. Build your network in the direction you're headed and the very practical steps leaders can take to do that. Be out, out of interest, any interesting examples or success stories where even, you know, generically where leaders have done that work up front and they've actually found a much smoother transition into a new role as a result, or they've been able to address issues that maybe have existed for many years with a stakeholder group as part of that learning and engagement process. I can think of a few examples of for board directors in particular, because for them, board search is often a hidden job market, as is the case with a lot of CEO recruitment as well. If a search firm isn't engaged to do that, often directors will be activating their own network and referring people through to be considered. So, if you don't know somebody, then you're not going to be obviously thought of to be referred into an opportunity. So, if you want to be in a particular sector, connecting with relevant influencers in that sector, being on their radar, building some form of relationship with them, helping them understand what it is that you're looking for in the future is the key way to then guess find out about an opportunity before it's even available. So, if you're invisible, you're invisible is you're what invisible. you're saying. <laughs> you're, yeah. You are missing opportunities because you're not in the line of sight Absolutely. when others are looking. And that's the thing. I think the important point about what you said there is these things are often happening behind closed doors. You don't know when that process is taking place unless you know. So, there could be so many opportunities that are just flying straight by you because you're not visible in the line of sight of people who are making those decisions. You're not being tapped on the shoulder. You're not being considered. And if I can connect that back to your example early on around the CMO and actually the importance of personal brand, is that a trend you're starting to see? Are we starting to see an emergence of boards and those and you know executive search firms? They're actually looking for people with that presence increasingly because organizations understand the value of having someone who is visible, who is connected, who is active, who is credible online. I think we've always been looking for it. We're just looking at it in a different frame. So, if you think about it, boards making decisions on who to appoint pre-social media, somebody who was regularly contributing in public articles or speaking at events, people with a profile, they were seen as valuable to an organization. It's the same. It's just that the channels through which people are building their influence are now different. It's starting to become part of the conversation. My prediction is it will become a big part of it in the future. What we're not talking about though, I think, is how a leader's personal brand augments 
the employee value proposition and helps be almost a magnet for talent to that business, that will become critical. And it's a brilliant example to call out because I do think that organizations still think of EVP and employer brand through the lens of the organization, through the institution itself, if I can call it that. We've seen so many examples, particularly in this past year with our clients, where when leaders themselves get active, they bring that to life in a completely different way. Their story, both from a personal perspective and, and employees, it's not just the one uh, top dog, but if you see that engagement across the workforce, the diversity and depth of employee voices, driven by leaders, it just brings your EVP to life in such a completely different way. And and you're connecting with different audiences who otherwise wouldn't hear your message. Absolutely. It's fine to have a website that has all the stuff about your careers and, and the opportunities. Great. It's fine to have a LinkedIn company page that pushes those messages out. Fine. If you're forgetting the leadership piece in this and you're forgetting about enabling your workforce in this, you're missing, honestly, 90% of the opportunity to engage with your future candidates. Well, we know that the reason people leave organisations is their leaders. So, the reverse is also true. People are attracted to organisations because of who they will work for and what that person stands for. It's the number one question people call when they're asking about a job after um, their hybrid working arrangements, I would say. <laughs> but it, it's tell me about the leader. Who are they? What are their values? What is their leadership style? What do they stand for? And so, Having ways that uh, people can engage with somebody before they've even come to the organization, whether it be video or through their LinkedIn, is really powerful. As you said, you feel like you know someone before you've Correct. even met them. So, it's a run- wonderful way to build rapport. Now, I'm sure you get asked this all the time by your clients, but who do you think our listeners should look to for inspiration? Is there anyone across industry you've looked at and you go, you do a wonderful job of all the things that we've chatted about today. You set an example that those transitioning CEOs could very well model off in terms of being a good listener, active participator in conversations, being someone who shares more about themselves as a as a human being, as an individual, someone who's out there celebrating and recognizing staff. Are there any examples that you would point to in industry that others can go and get inspiration from? Uh, so, there's two leaders that I'd probably highlight here. The first being Doug Taylor, the CEO of the Smith family. And what I think that Doug does incredibly well is, yes, talk about the incredible work of the Smith family, but he also takes a real stewardship role, I think, of the not-for-profit sector more broadly. So, he talks about the sector. He showcases great work of other people. I see him regularly leaving comments on other CEOs and supporting them. And so, I think that's a great example of how you can, I guess, lift up an entire sector with you. Also, as a leader of an organization with a very strong brand, with a long history, share the influence, share your experience with others. The second CEO that I would highlight is Violet Romeliotis, who is the CEO of SSI. Now, they're a not-for-profit who provide services to refugees and newly resettled Australians. And what I think Violet does especially well is the stakeholder piece that we spoke about. So, she is very influential across the sector more broadly, very well respected, and I know is somebody that the government will look to if they're talking about particular issues that relate to her patch. And so, she regularly contributes to the conversation, shares her thoughts on important social issues, not necessarily just within the remit of her organisation, but more broadly. Again, I think that that's a different way to engage, but an incredibly effective one as well. 
And what a wonderful deep dive into the the seemingly limitless opportunities LinkedIn presents new aspiring or transitioning CEOs, Chris. So thank you for your wisdom. And if you've been listening along and are feeling inspired by the way that you too can take control of your narrative and your network on LinkedIn, drop Chris a note on LinkedIn or reach out to me, Roger Christie, with any questions. But whatever you do, please do take away this key message. LinkedIn isn't something new CEOs should avoid due to risk. LinkedIn isn't a place to simply tell the world you've changed roles before moving on again. As Chris shared, and and I do think this is really important, the right planning, the right relationships, the right engagement, and the right posting, even ahead of time, will all help you achieve greater success in your new role. So don't waste that opportunity. Keep an eye out for our upcoming practical reflection episode on this fantastic topic next week. And thank you as always for tuning in to the Your Digital Reputation podcast. Thanks again for listening. If you've learned something from today's conversation, please subscribe, leave a review and share it with others. For all show notes, head to propelgroup.com.au. Thanks again for listening.